You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Inner Reading and Inner Hearing and another set in the same volume called And How to Achieve Existence in the World of Ideas. This is Part 1, Lecture 1, The Human Being in Relationship to the World, given in Dornach on October 3, 1914. You should not expect that these four lectures will be a substitute for what was intended for Munich. I will try to give a sketch here of something of what the content of the Munich lectures should have been, but the most important and essential things that should have been said there must be held for less turbulent times. I am amazed that some people think that the strenuous effort required to speak about spiritual scientific subjects of the highest importance, which is indeed what should have happened in Munich, could be mustered in times like the present. A time will come when people will understand that it is just not possible to speak the highest truths into the storm. When karma permits, I will in the future give a cycle of lectures on the substance of my theme that will take the place of the Munich lectures. However, since the wish has been expressed to hear something on this theme anyway, I want to accommodate that as far as possible over the coming days. The essentials of spiritual science have been won basically through inner reading and inner hearing. And when spiritual researchers speak about the nature of inner reading and inner hearing, we hear something about the methods by which they come into their results. Truly, the most absurd opinions one could possibly conceive prevail today regarding how spiritual scientific results are obtained. As an introduction, before I move on to my main topic, I want to mention a triviality, trivial in relation to what our present movement wants to be. Some professor, a present-day research scientist, wrote a, a review of my book titled Theosophy. The review came out several years ago, and its author was evidently most annoyed by what my book says about the human aura, thought forms and the like. Among many things I don't care to mention now is one that is perfectly understandable from the point of view of a research scientist that is such a typical modern thinker. The review says that if one believes there really is something to this stuff about the aura and thought forms, then some of the people who can see auras and thought forms should subject themselves to an experiment in which they would be brought together with a group of people who have certain thoughts and feelings and sensations within themselves. Then the seers should be asked, quote, What do you see about the people standing or sitting there in front of you? Close quote. And in the opinion of the writer of this review, if these seers say what the people being observed subsequently confirm that they have truly thought and felt, and if in addition the seers agree with one another in their statements, 
then one can really believe them. Nothing is more natural, more self-evident than this objection. One could almost say that a thinker familiar with the natural science of the present day must raise it, because it would have to appear to be the most rational thing that could be said. However, one thing remains true. The man in question must have read the book before he wrote the review. One must assume this, since the review gives the impression of honesty, but it is impossible that he read it. As self-evident and natural as it is that one will make this objection, as long as one does not know the truths contained in the book, it should be equally self-evident that one who has read the book with understanding will not make such an objection. With these words I am saying something dreadful for all normal scientific thinkers of today, because that is incomprehensible for them. They cannot understand it at all. Among the many things in the book is the following. If seers really want to look into the spiritual world and see the truth, they must, above all, first practice a self-education that enables them to immerse themselves in things in an utterly selfless manner, so that they can silence their own desires when they present themselves to the spiritual world. But if five or six people come together to make an experiment, according to scientific method, as is demanded in the review, they sit down with the desire to arrive at some results according to very particular methods demanded by natural science. There everything is done according to wishes and desires, as in ordinary life, which is precisely what should be overcome. It is obvious that every perception of the spiritual world would be extinguished in such an experiment made entirely according to the ordinary thinking of the physical plane. These thoughts of the physical plane, along with all their wishes and desires, must be overcome. One can reply to such objections in only a positive way. Such an experiment could certainly be arranged, but it should not be arranged according to the methods of the physical plane. Rather, it should be arranged according to the methods of the spiritual world. How should it take place? Above all, the intentions should lie in the spiritual world and not originate in the head of some curious professor. If the intention is that people who are seers on the physical plane should experience something of the thoughts and feelings of other human beings, that intention should originate in the spiritual world, and it should come from the spiritual world through karma that a handful of people should be brought together through the dispensation of fate, not through the methods of a professor. <clears throat> on the other side, also the seers must be brought together by destiny. Then the experiment would be arranged by the spiritual world and the seers would be able to reveal what lives in individual people as feelings, etc. If the experiment were arranged in this way, it would most definitely succeed. It will always succeed if so arranged. One who truly reads titled Theosophy with understanding will know what I have just said, but will recognize as a self-evident truth of the spiritual world that an experiment of this sort is not possible in our time. One must take that into account. 
and because I learned from the above-mentioned review that people are not in a position to read the book in such a way as to find find this thought for themselves, I have spelled out what I have just said word for word in a note in the sixth edition, the galleys of which lie before me. One of the most essential conditions of a book that has grown out of spiritual science is that one assimilates more than its content. That is the very least of it. In addition, in assimilating the book, one in a certain way alters how one thinks and feels and senses things. One progresses in relation to the standards and criteria otherwise used in the ordinary world. The difficulty confronting the understanding of spiritual scientific works, even today, is that people read them like other writings and believe they can absorb the content in the same way as in other writings, whereas, in fact, something in themselves must be transformed if they have understood a true esoteric book really thoroughly. Hence it is understandable that most people in our time reject real esoteric books. For what must take place in people who read such a book in the present day? These people who approach the book are obviously very clever, as are all people these days. They know that they can judge the content of the book, that there cannot possibly be a better judge of the book. They know that up front. And after reading it, should they be able to judge things differently? They obviously cannot. They are indeed clever and have the best manner of forming judgments. They will not submit to changing something in their judging. Therefore they will get no feeling for the goals, the intentions of the book. At best, they can conclude that they have learned absolutely nothing from the book and that it's all merely a game of words and concepts. That is entirely obvious, and so must it be if one does not keep the inner nerve of spiritual science in view, that in whatever way, no matter how small, one will arrive at a different manner of feeling and judgment regarding the world by reading a true spiritual scientific book. One point should be considered if the words, quote, esoteric reading, close quote, and, quote, esoteric hearing, close quote, are to have any meaning at all. We must first, to a certain degree, say goodbye to the ordinary manner of judgment in relation to the physical plane. I have emphasized more than once that although one is acquiring a new form of judging, thinking, and feeling for the spiritual world, obviously one must remain a rational person and hold on to a common-sense judgment for the events and entities of the physical plane. But for the higher worlds, something is necessary that is not valid for the physical plane. I will begin with a topic familiar to you. We are accustomed to relating to the things and entities of the physical plane through our thinking, feeling, and willing. When we think and form concepts, we acquire definitions and concepts of the things and entities of the physical world and the processes occurring there. In that way we make that which, in our opinion, exists in space and takes place in time into our mental property, so to speak. We learn to know about things through our thinking and forming of concepts. It is the same with feeling. 
We approach any sort of thing, for example a rose. We are cheered by the rose, and through our feeling transfer something in the outside world into our own soul. In this way we make something that comes from the rose and affects us into the property of our own soul. In the case of willing, we incorporate into the outside world something that lies in our intentions. When we consider our manner of being on the physical plane, we see only relationships between ourselves and the outside world. Everything we apply in thinking, feeling, and willing, everything we do when we engage the exterior world for ordinary physical bodily matters is of no use to us. In the form in which it is carried out on the physical plane, in knowing something of the higher world in some way. Rather, everything that is useful to us in knowing something about the physical world, the ways of feeling and the ways of forming concepts so as to know about the physical world, can serve only as preparation for spiritual scientific research. Take note. In the physical world, what we do when we think, feel, and will serves us directly in knowing something of that world or in doing something in it. But for the higher worlds, everything that serves us so directly in the physical world is only a preparation. What we are capable of thinking about the physical world, no matter how acutely we think, gives us no knowledge about the higher worlds. Through thinking, however, our soul is prepared or brought up, so to speak, in such a way that it gradually becomes capable of penetrating into the spiritual world in the right way. What we can will and feel about the physical world is useful merely for the self-education of the soul as preparation for its penetration into the spiritual worlds. To make myself clear, let me put it this way. Scholarly researchers learn through their scientific method something about the external world, and then are accustomed to say that they know this or that about the external world. This method of researching, of thinking, is of no use in entering the spiritual world. Its only significance is as an exercise for the soul forces. Through thinking and pursuing research, the soul becomes more capable of living within itself and activating its power and only this is effective for penetrating the higher worlds. The activities normally carried out in the physical world are applicable for the spiritual researcher only as a cultivation of the soul. I want to choose one more comparison to make the matter clearer. Let us assume that a man is a carpenter. He has learned carpentry and intends to make this or that object. Through daily activity as a carpenter, he makes this or that year after year. That is the nature of his job. However, things are being made that are useful not just for the physical plane. Something else appears as an extra. He becomes more dexterous. His use of his hands becomes more nimble. And as he becomes more skillful and nimble, he acquires something for his own organism, a corollary. It is the same with intellectual activities. Take, for example, a botanist. If I am active as a botanist and make amazing efforts decade after decade in the field of botany, that is a fine thing on the physical plane. However, all this effort has a secondary effect 
I become more agile in thinking. My thinking becomes, so to speak, trained. Parentheses do not take the expression in the ordinary trivial sense of the word. Close parenthesis. Spiritual researchers must enter into this training and use what is used in ordinary life in the service of external knowledge to make the intellectual powers more agile, more supple. For when, instead of applying these powers to usefulness and advantage in the physical world, we use them in the service of self-education, as happens in meditation, concentration, and the exercises received, then we are preparing ourselves to penetrate into the spiritual world. The phrase, we are preparing ourselves, is exceptionally important, for basically we can do absolutely nothing else than prepare ourselves to penetrate into the spiritual world. The rest is a matter for the spiritual world, which must then meet us halfway. It does not, however, meet us halfway when we are only as we ordinarily are on the physical plane. Only if we have transformed our soul forces in the manner described can we hope for the spiritual world to come to meet us. It cannot be like research in the physical world, where one approaches things so easily. We can only prepare ourselves so that when the things of the spiritual world approach us, they do not escape our notice, but rather really make an impression on us. Therefore we must say that all we can do for researching the spiritual world is to prepare ourselves worthily, so that when karma is willing for it to meet us, we are not blind and deaf to it. We can prepare ourselves, but encountering the spiritual world is an act of grace on its part and must be understood as such. Hence the answer to the question of how we can succeed in penetrating the spiritual world is that we must prepare ourselves with everything that makes our thinking and feeling more supple, more agile. Whatever trains our thinking, so to speak, whatever makes our feeling, our sensing, finer, more devoted, and then wait, wait, wait. That is the golden word. Be able to wait in quietness of soul. The spiritual world does not allow itself to be attained in any way other than by making oneself worthy of it, and then developing an expectant mood in peacefulness of soul. It depends on that. An expectant mood is the essential. We earn the spiritual world for ourselves when we make ourselves ready for it in the way I have described many times in my books. But then we must also acquire absolute peacefulness of soul, the only way that makes it possible for the spiritual world to approach us. Once in my lectures I use the following image. In the physical world, if we wish to get a look at anything, we go to it. Anyone wishing to see Rome must travel to Rome. That is perfectly natural in the physical world, because Rome is not going to come to us. In the spiritual world it is exactly the opposite. We can do nothing except prepare ourselves through the methods described to receive the spiritual world in a worthy manner. Peacefulness of soul, persistence in our position, then it will come to us. We must wait for it in peacefulness of soul. That is what is important in the matter. Where is what will come to us? Where is it? I have already spoken often on that subject also, 
and will mention it only by way of introduction so that we will have a good foundation to build on over the coming days. Since you know our anthroposophical literature, I will ask the question in this way. Where are the beings of the elemental worlds? Where are the beings of the spiritual world? Where are the beings of the higher hierarchies? They are right where we are. They are all around us, where the table and the chairs are, where you yourselves are. They are everywhere all around us. But they are so thin and evanescent, compared to the relationships and processes of the things of the external world, that they escape our attention. We continually go straight through the spiritual world and do not see it. We are inattentive to the spiritual world because our constitution is not prepared for it. Moreover, if we have the opportunity to penetrate that world, as is the case at night in sleep, then our consciousness proves too weak, too dull, to perceive the spiritual beings around us. We human beings are in the spiritual world, in this fine, fluctuating world, from the onset of sleep until awakening. But we do not perceive it, because our consciousness is too dull to perceive it. What must happen for us to learn to perceive this world in which we have always been living? To understand what should happen, we need to discuss several important points. Above all, we must not lose sight of something I have attempted to present more exactly for the general public in the final chapter of my book titled The Riddles of Philosophy. I want to see whether people who are not a part of the anthroposophical stream can understand it. How does external perception actually take place? It is true, is it not, that people, especially those who consider themselves to be very clever, usually think that external perception takes place because things are on the outside and we human beings live inside our skin. These external things make an impression on us and through that our brain produces an inner image of external objects and forms. Now it is most certainly not like that. The situation is entirely different. In truth, human beings are not at all within their skin with respect to their spirit and soul. When, for example, we see a bouquet of roses, we are in reality inside the bouquet with our eye, capital, and astral body, and our organism is a reflecting device that reflects things back to us. We are in truth always spread out above the horizon we are observing. Moreover, in waking consciousness, we exist with a significant part of our eye and astral body within the physical and etheric bodies as well. Here is what the process is really like, as I have mentioned often in my lectures. Imagine you are walking around in a room with a number of mirrors on the walls. You walk through the space, and where you have no mirror, you do not see yourself. However, as soon as you come to a mirror, you see yourself. In a place without a mirror, you don't see yourself. When a mirror is there once again, you see yourself once again. That is also how it is with the human organism. It is not the producer of the things we experience in the soul. It is only a reflecting device. The soul is united with things on the outside. For example, here with this bouquet of roses. Whether the soul sees the bouquet consciously or not, 
depends on whether the eye, E-Y-E, in connection with the brain device of the soul, reflects what the soul is living with. Moreover, during the night we do not perceive, because when we sleep we pull our eye and astral body out of our physical and etheric bodies, which as a result cease to function as a reflecting device. Going to sleep is like taking away a mirror that was in front of you. As long as you can look into the mirror, you have your own face in front of you. Take the mirror away, and immediately nothing of your face is left there. With our soul-spiritual nature, we are truly within the part of the world we observe, and we see it because our organism reflects it. At night this reflecting device is taken away, and we see nothing more. The part of the world we see is ourselves. One of the worst things about Maya is that we believe our spiritual soul being is within our skin. It is not. In reality we are located in the things we see. If I face other people, I am located within them with my eye and my astral body. Were I not to place my organism over against them, I would not see them. My organism is responsible for the fact that I see them. But with my eye and my astral body, I am inside them. The failure to recognize this is one of the most disastrous aspects of Maya. In this way we get an idea of the nature of perception and experience on the physical plane. Let us now look at the spiritual world, which I have said is so fleeting, so highly fluctuating and mobile in comparison with the processes and things of the physical world. We also live within that world, but we do not experience it in the same way as the coarse things of the physical world, because it is too fine. If we want to experience this fluctuating fineness, we first have to properly tone down our ordinary eye, the bearer of our individuality, our selfness. We do this through a correct meditation. What does this meditation consist of? We take up any subject of thought and give ourselves entirely over to it. We forget ourselves and live in this thought while we suppress the selfness of our ordinary daytime consciousness. We exclude everything connected with the selfness of daytime consciousness. And since we as earthly human beings are accustomed to applying selfness to the physical plane, we first have to suppress all selfness. Instead of living in the physical and etheric bodies, we gradually succeed through this suppression of selfness in living in the astral body alone. Please note that what matters is that when we meditate, concentrate, the first goal is always to strive not to live in selfness. It may not provide physical experiences, but to endeavor to force our consciousness down into the astral body. When it is in the astral body, it is not reflected in the physical body. When you see the bouquet, you are in truth inside the bouquet. The physical body is a reflective device. You see the bouquet because the physical body reflects it for you. When you suppress the eye with its selfness, you will be in the astral body. 
The astral body is now so delicate that you can consciously perceive the fine fluctuating things outside in the external world. But in order really to perceive them, they must first be reflected. Here is something you must consider. Many of you are loyally and truly devoted to meditation, through which you succeed in suppressing ordinary selfness and begin to experience in the astral body. However, reflection must join this experiencing before you can perceive consciously in the astral body. Many of you have already gone so far in meditation that you experience in the astral body. Now it is a matter of the reflection. <clears throat> and just as in ordinary life we receive experiences mirrored by the physical body, so when we want to perceive in the spiritual world must the experiences of the astral body be reflected by the etheric body. But what happens when a person's experiences in the astral body are in fact reflected in the etheric body? Something happens then that is totally different from seeing in the physical world. In the spiritual world, one does not have the easy time of it that one has in the physical world. A bouquet standing here before me is an object contained within itself. I can take pleasure in it. I can take it home with me, put it in a vase there, and so forth. It is not at all like that with what one encounters as astral experiences reflected through the etheric body. Everything there is living and weaving. Nothing is at rest, even for a moment. But how a thing appears, when reflected, is not at all the thing in question. In the case of this bouquet, it is a matter of what it is. I take the bouquet, and then I have it. When something is reflected to me, through my etheric body, I cannot just take it as it is, and be satisfied with it. It simply is not at all what it seems. I have often used a comparison for this fact as well. If strokes are made here, and I could not read, the letters B, A, U are written on the blackboard, I would say, I see lines that are fitted together in a particular pattern. I cannot take what is on the blackboard home with me as I can the bouquet. In that case, I would have nothing. And even when I can read what is on the blackboard, bow, which means building, I still do not have the thing in question. The thing in question for me is the building outside. That is what I express through these lines and signs. Building. Even when I read the sign, I do not have the thing in question. I only read the signs. I do not have the building itself. In ordinary reading, I do not have the thing in question in front of me. Rather, I have only the sign for it. That is how I should understand what I experience in the astral body and then receive reflected in the etheric body. I comprehend it correctly only as a sign that stands for something else. To contemplate what is reflected in my etheric body from my astral body does not suffice any more than in the case of the lines here in BAU. It is a question of what the signs mean. I must first learn to read them. 
In the same way, I must first learn to read what I perceive in the spiritual world. What are reflected in my etheric body are the signs for the truth. That means I must learn to read in the spiritual world. The only way we can experience anything from the spiritual world is to understand that we must take what it offers us as letters and sounds which we must learn to read. That is it. And not to learn to believe that we can spare ourselves learning to read the esoteric script would be just as clever as someone taking a book and saying, quote, There are fools who say that something is expressed in this book. I thumb from page to page in it and see only pretty letters. Close quote. Those who cannot read the letters absorb only what they see and are unconcerned about what is expressed. One who does not pay attention to what I have just said comes to an entirely unbalanced relation to the spiritual world. There it is a matter of learning to interpret and read what one perceives. We shall learn in the following lectures how this interpretation and reading is meant. Now I can say that I have clarified, at least in an introductory manner, the preliminary concept of esoteric reading. It occurs when we experience ourselves in the astral body as we otherwise do in the I in the physical world, capital I, so that the experiences of the astral body are reflected in the etheric body rather than the experiences of the ego in the physical body. We must consider something else. We are not only, as I have said today, in outside things. In a waking state we send something of the I into the physical body, drawing it out of the physical body again only during the night, in sleep. This means that in order to perceive in the physical world, we must be able to dive into our physical body with the eye. In order to perceive in the spiritual world, to read the spiritual world, we learn first that we can experience things in our astral body and that we can receive the reflections of things we experience in the astral body in the etheric body. Now we must ascend to the point of being able to dive down into the etheric body just as we dive into the physical body when we awaken. Pay attention to what follows. It is necessary to dive down into the etheric body with the astral body when we learn to read in the spiritual world. Just as we dive down into the physical body when we awaken, so must we, without diving down into the physical body, dive down into the etheric body. Esotericists, rightly so, call this diving down into the etheric body a fall into the abyss. It is necessary that one is not stupefied during this fall into the abyss, that one presses down with one's consciousness and finds oneself during the fall. For this diving down into the etheric body does not proceed as comfortably as diving down into the physical body. It is in fact something like a mighty plunge into the abyss, for one is now split into three parts as I have described in my book titled How to Know Higher Worlds. One is split apart, divided, dissolved into a tripartite entity. 
You cannot consciously descend into the etheric body without being divided in the way indicated. When we sleep, we are outside the physical and etheric bodies with our eye and astral body, and our consciousness is too dull to perceive the spiritual world. When we dive down into the physical body, which reflects the physical world to us so that we perceive that world, that is also a kind of falling into the abyss, only it is made so comfortable for us that we do not feel it as a shock. When we progress through our exercises to the condition in which we can perceive something in the spiritual world, we learn to read. That is comparable to a sleeping state that has become conscious. We also learn to recognize the falling into the abyss, the splintering into three parts, when we are submerged in our etheric body. If we maintain our consciousness, if we are able to dive down into things and processes in the spiritual world that are outside us, Let me read that again. If we maintain our consciousness, we are able to dive down into things and processes in the spiritual world that are outside us. When we live in the astral body and receive things as reflections in the etheric body, we learn to read, as when we read a book. As soon as we are submerged in the etheric body, we splinter ourselves into three parts, and we can send out the three parts which can then wander about consciously in the spiritual world. In their wandering about there, they experience what we call esoteric hearing. Esoteric hearing begins as soon as we have plunged into our own etheric body. Now we really penetrate into things. Now we notice that we can experience what we have previously learned to read. Let us repeat. Through esoteric exercises, we are enabled to suppress ourself to the point that we can learn to live consciously in the astral body. Then gradually the processes and entities of the spiritual world are reflected by the etheric body. If we are able to interpret this reflected world in the right way, as we shall hear in the following lectures, then we have learned the art of esoteric reading. If we progress and are able to read not only from outside the etheric body, but dive down to awaken in the etheric body, we send the three parts from us out into the world and hear the processes in their inner nature and activity. At this stage we hear them. We can gradually develop the faculty of esoteric reading and esoteric hearing in such a way that through it we bring about something very particular. We can actually penetrate the reality of things. For what occurs on the physical plane is not reality. Truly, it is not. A simple deliberating can show us everywhere that what we experience in our immediate surroundings is not reality, that we interpret everything incorrectly. Someone once said to me on the banks of the Rhine, that is the ancient Rhine. That is certainly a very beautiful, deeply felt thing to say. But what is actually ancient about the Rhine? 
The water that one sees flows by, excuse me, the water that one sees flow by, certainly not. It is constantly flowing, and in the next moment is no longer there. The ancient thing could at best be the channel the water has carved in the soil. However, that is not what one means when one says the ancient Rhine. What is it really that we denote with the expression ancient Rhine? We do not say about the sea that it is an ancient sea. And in the sea there are also channels dug out by the water, and likewise in the sea there are currents. When the Gulf Stream flows through the ocean, not only is the water changed every moment, but also the channels are different. What then in the physical world is permanent? Nothing, absolutely nothing. That is true of the entire physical world. Your own organism is constantly in flux. Eight years ago you did not have the flesh and blood you have today. Nothing in the physical is permanent. Everything is flowing. And what we refer to with the word we do not have before us. To speak of the ancient Rhine only makes sense when we mean what is permanent in it the elemental beings who actually live in the Rhine, the river god Rhine, a spiritual being who is ancient. Only then have we said something with any meaning. We must mean something spiritual with the expression ancient Rhine, or we speak thoughtlessly. It is profoundly true that we only come to true realities when we hold fast to the spiritual worlds. Only then do we penetrate the true realities. The fact and the means of our entry we shall see tomorrow and the next day when we discuss esoteric reading and hearing in detail as far as is possible. The end of Lecture 1